you know, we're kind of coming full circle here, man. I mean, we, when we did our first podcast together, um, at Bizzlecast 30, uh, you know, Star Trek to Star Wars to Asimov or whatever we ended up calling it. <laughs> um, we really... Star Trek to Star Wars Avengers to Asimov. I believe oh, that was great. the title. And that was your title. That was a brilliant title. Um, but, but I do. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I thought your copy editor forced titles on you, though. No? <laughs> no, I picked plenty of headlines on my own. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and we did talk about Star Trek in like some very, very abstract terms, and I would like to continue that discussion. Okay. But I want to make I want to make this more per, uh, more personal in some ways. And I actually called my dad about an hour ago, um, knowing that we were probably going to do this podcast tonight. Because my parents were very encouraging of my love of fantasy and especially science fiction mm-hmm. uh, in all media. They were happy to support you know it financially and emotionally and just as parents. But you know uh, they saw it as uh, uh, you know increasing the um, you know span of my imagination essentially. Right. And, and you know my, my dad didn't have such specific memories, even though he took me to see and we'll get back to the Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country, the final movie of the original cast in '91, which is excellent, and which was a couple years into Star Trek: The Next Generation. And then I started watching the TV shows after that. My dad doesn't have a very specific memories, but he does talk about how they were. You know, I was sort of an awkward, nerdy kid. I mean, this is the comic book thing, and it, it, they were happy that I was into something so you know relatively brainy as like television goes. I mean, there's nothing like this on TV today. And so I ask you, Matt, to start off our conversation about Star Trek, mm-hmm. what is your sort of story? Like, how did you come to it? When did it become like a thing for you, you know, where you're like, I, I really just love this property and I'm willing to ride through some good and some not so good. And, and as far as it goes, like, what, what, what's your story about Star Trek? All right. So for me, it starts with Next Generation. Um, I don't know if my parents watched it every week, but I remember them watching it a lot. And I kind of liked it just because it was something together as we would watch Star Trek and we'd have dinner. And then that became actually a ritual. We called it Steak and Star Trek. Um, and it became a weekly thing. And we'd watch Star Trek with the, you know, at the dining room table where we had a TV we could wheel around and we'd eat and watch at the same time. I believe it and, was Saturday nights, if I'm not mistaken. For... Next gen, it might have been for DS9. It was, but for Enterprise and Voyager, we kept this shit up even through the bad Star Trek shows. Um, <laughs> it was Tuesdays and Wednesdays, is my is my memory. They were weekday shows. Oh, you watched Enterprise? Yes, it was really? only three seasons. Yeah, I'm, I can't defend it. It's really bad, and the second season is an extended, not particularly intelligent metaphor about nine eleven. Um, where interesting. I, I, I'm not even going to make anything that I'm about to tell you up. Basically, the plot is an unknown alien bad guy sends a giant deep space probe to Earth. It cuts a like 50 mile swath out of Florida. It kills tons of people. Everybody in the Federation is completely shocked and horrified and traumatized at this massive loss of life. And then the Enterprise set, sets off on this deep space mission to an area they don't even fully understand to find out who did this and destroy them. And then at the end, they decide not to because they get a vision of the future where they're told, basically, don't kill these guys yet. You might need them later. Um, 
and that's the some reason of why they don't ultimately create commit massive genocide. It's a really bad, really long extended 9/11 metaphor. I um <laughs> in desperation a few months ago was able to get through most of the first season of Enterprise just cuz I was so curious about why it was so bad. Right. And <laughs> I have to say the only really appealing and good thing about that show is Jolene Blaylock. Uh, and Paul. John Billingsley as Dr. Flox. John Billingsley yes, is cool. Flox is awesome. And that's why the the few episodes where those two characters interact are actually quite good yeah. uh, in comparison good to the show. Yeah. So she's like a supermodel. I don't know if you know this. And she's married to the president um, and CEO of Live Nation, Michael Rapino. Hmm. Um, so she's, she's a BFD. I don't know if her acting career has done a whole lot since that. No, but, it has not. But, but I will say she channeled a female um, Vulcan better than I ever you know, had seen or, or, or thought possible. Uh, it had been, been all bad know. up to this point. Go she ahead, go ahead, rip seem- into it. She did not seem to me to be very Vulcan-y. She just, Hmm. I don't know, she came off as, I mean, I I think the point of the show is that the Vulcans are in sort of this this protos phase where they're still kind of evolving into the Vulcans as we would come to think of them based on how Spock would be and how Vulcans in Next Generation would be. I I thought her decision-making was illogical a lot of the time. And for a species where logic is basically a divine force, uh, that was kind of troubling and unfortunate. So I think, uh, to follow that train of thought, um, you know, y- you and I aren't creating a revolution <laughs> by comparing uh, the Vulcans to the elves in The Lord of the Rings. Right. Uh, I mean, forget the pointy ears. I mean, just their whole approach to humanity and the world is quite similar. Oh, yeah. Um, in the lack of emotion. And, and I think, it, in some ways, yeah, she was more an elf than a Vulcan. Like, she she was almost playing, like, an even more elfish version of a Vulcan in some ways. Uh, maybe just because she was beautiful, and but she's just the only one on set other than Billingsley who had any charisma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, how did it get to that point? Um, you know, looking back on your own experience, for me, yeah, so I saw Star Trek VI in 1991 in the theaters. I'm telling you, man, it still looks pretty good, honestly. I mean, for for 1991 Star Trek budget, uh, it, 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 it looks better than The Next Generation just because they had more millions to throw around. Uh, and they don't have to do so many establishment shots with the ships and whatever, but that mm-hmm. got me into The Next Generation. And if you're into the stuff, and then you got Patrick Stewart... Um, and this is a topic I really want to get to. Um, I thought we'd talk about the actors later, but maybe we should start with that, which is that <laughs> despite the corniness and the overblown lighting and the over-moralizing and too much technobabble and all of these problems with Star Trek, mm-hmm. the good Star Trek properties, big screen and small, I think, I would argue, have succeeded or at least survived based on just great dramatic performances or at least great casting and great actors trying to make these roles human and relatable. Agree or disagree? Uh, For the most part, I would agree, but I would say that I think they, they've survived not because of any one actor is great, even though yes, obviously Patrick Stewart is kicks ass. um, And there have been other actors who have been singularly amazing. 
I think the ensemble quality of the show and how much fun and appeal these people seem to have spending time with each other is something that makes Star Trek attractive. And it's one of the reasons it's kind of hung around um, is that these people all seem to really like spending time with each other. Like the, the cast of Star Trek Next Generation seems to really enjoy being in each other's company. Yeah, so how does that happen? I mean, there was about a... Oh, God, I'm going to do some mental math here. There was more than a 20-year gap between the original series ending on television, although Mm -hmm. it continued in the movies, and when the new series was launched. Now, I don't want to credit Star Trek VI... Uh, with all of Next Generation's success, it's hard to argue that both the quality and the ratings of Next Generation really started picking up in the third or fourth year, um, which is around that time that movie came out. That could have been totally a coincidence. I, I think it know. was, honestly. Um, I remember seeing Star Trek VI in theaters. I remember not quite understanding it because I wasn't used to the old cast. I do remember I thought it looked pretty cool, the scenes where... They go into the the murder scene and there's blood floating in space. I thought was very scary at the time, but in retrospect, just kind of well done. I think purple, Star- purple blood, yeah, whatever it was, you know. I think <laughs> Klingon blood, I think yeah. Star Trek Next Generation was well on its way to uh, before before that happened, and I think whatever boost the show might have gotten out of another movie, I don't think it had very much. I think it was minimal at best. Um, I think you may be overstating the importance of Star Trek VI. Okay, well let me let me let me continue this argument though. All right, you can continue to tell me that I'm wrong. <laughs> 1991 was the turning point in the Cold War, essentially. I mean, the wall came down in '89, but '91 mm-hmm. was the year when the political stuff really started coming through in terms of negotiations of ending the Cold War. Right. What was Star Trek VI about? It was the ending of a yeah. A, a little bit of a warm war. It wasn't completely a cold war, but it is very comparable. The, the, I mean, it's not a coincidence that the negoti- the tense ne- negotiations between the Klingons and the humans in 91 happened in the same exact year as this was going on between the Russians and the Americans. So again, is Star Trek capturing the moment, or were they just a product of it and just lucky to be a part of it? Um... I'm because not remember, sh- the twist is, right. spoiler alert, sorry, the twist, uh, spoiler alert, is that people on both sides, the Federation side and the Klingon side, end up uh, sabotaging it on purpose for some reasons related to the military-industrial complex that is a big part of our society. And right. just, uh, there, there's money reasons behind it, there's political, it's, it's actually quite complex, the reasons that there are saboteurs uh, on both sides, including a half-Vulcan um, who is played, you're not going to believe this, you might not even know who this is. Um, so, do y- you know the, the, the young, good-looking uh, Vulcan at Star Trek VI, Lieutenant Valeris, who ends up being the traitor, and I think she ends up being Romulan, um, is played by Kim Cattrall. Really? Who, play, who played Samantha Sex on the Sex in the yeah. City. Yeah, yeah that's funny. Yeah. There are all kinds of random like people who are in Star Trek at, at various points that you never would expect to have shown up on Star Trek. Not the least of which was Whoopi Goldberg, who really, oh, if yes. you look at the sum total of the career she's had, and it's been a, a great career for her, 
Star Trek feels very, very bizarre and like not Whoopi Goldberg-ish. Even she if she loves science a- fiction, she talks about it openly. She loves science fiction. She was a Battlestar fan, a huge Battlestar fan. Was In fact, she? she had she had Mary McDonnell and Eddie Olmos on the View multiple times. Okay, so times. maybe that makes more sense then. Yep. Um, but if you look at all the other roles she's ever taken on, Guinan, as good a character as she was, does seem a little bit like out of left field. Um, to your point about the Cold War metaphors. I think there is some validity to that, but I would also say that I think in some ways the original series was always more overtly political than Next Generation was. Um, I don't remember Next Generation really being a current events kind of thing in the way that the original series was. Um, so let me throw so an idea. Again, let me throw an idea at you kay. along those lines. So if the original series was more political, I agree. They had Chekhov, a Russian guy. They, and as we talked about, what was great about Chekhov, um, and just a quick side note, I, I have to do this. <sighs> I have to send out a shout-out to Anton Yelchin, a really brilliant young actor, who his portrayal of Chekhov, while great, is really one of the less significant things that he did as a great young actor. And not only is Yelchin, was Yelchin a great young actor, may he rest in peace, he was born to a Russian Jewish family in, in Leningrad and, and hmm. came to the United States. And st- again, Steven Spielberg was the guy who essentially discovered him and uh, put him on one of his TV shows or something like that. He ended up being in a horrible Terminator movie, Salvation, but he was in the star, and the, the, the movie was named after him, Charlie Bartlett, in 2007. I cannot urge Bizzlecast listeners to watch this movie enough. His mom had been recently widowed. She was projecting her psychological problems on him and, and forced him to go to see a psychiatrist, which he didn't need to see. And the psychiatrist was forcing medicines on him. <laughs> he then went on to, f- to sell those medications and offer psychiatric advice to high school kids in his high school in the bathroom. And Robert Downey Jr. plays the principal. And the daughter of Robert Downey Jr., played by the amazing and hilarious Kat Dennings, was the love interest. It's a really, really funny and, and just touching and quirky film that endeared me to him forever. I, I'm hoping we'll see a lot of him in the new Star Trek movie. Um, Matt, did you, had you come across him at all in, in any non-Star Trek properties? No, although I believe he is the star of a movie called Green Room, um, yep. which came out earlier this year, which I did not see, but I understand it's a sort of a horror movie that has Patrick Stewart in it playing a skinhead, like a white supremacist. It was, released, apparently, la- it was released last year, actually. Go ahead. Uh, it might have come into – it might have been late last year. Yeah. Um, I think it maybe hit the like the indie scene and like festivals le- last year, but I think it – came to mainstream theaters maybe a little bit more recently. Oh, no, fact, you're right. You're right. April you're right. 15, April 2016. Um, I didn't see it. I have a lot of friends who are film critics. All of them say, I mean, it's brutal. It's really visceral and violent and dark and not for the faint of heart, but apparently it's terrific. Um, so if you're looking for something that isn't Star Trek, and really he was one for two at best in those because those movies are kind of one for two, um, this, I think, would be a, another fine way to get another sense of what this guy was and what we may have lost, you know, with his death. Um, he was very good as Chekhov. I wouldn't go so far as to say he was amazing. I thought he was a decent casting, but not one of the breakthrough stars of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. No. No, but that was never really his point. And some of these movies that we're talking about is where you really see him shine. Yeah. 
Um, and, uh, you know, and, and he talks about how his grandparents were persecuted because they were Jewish, um, but they were figure skaters in, in, in the USSR under Stalin. Um, and, and the Soviets actually didn't let them compete in the 72 Winter Olympics because they were Jewish, even though they were the best. Um, and so forth, and so just just really really sad um, to see him go. But but anyway, so so when Chekhov was cast in um, in the what was it 1964? I think was the first uh, the first year of the original series. No, ni- uh, 1967. Excuse me. Uh, played by Walter Ko- Koenig. I never know how to pronounce his name. Koenig is that is that Koenig? I, be- Koenig. Koenig, okay. I believe is correct. But as we talked about in other podcasts, or maybe multiple times, what's great about science fiction is not only do you work in, you know, like an enemy of the state, it's sort of in the future, but you don't even mention the fact that you're doing it, and it's totally normal. Like, they never mentioned that he was Russian. I mean, they mm-hmm. stressed his Russian accent and his Russianness and the, and the character and the original character. But right. that was a very strong statement in the 60s by Gene Roddenberry, obviously, to yeah. say the least. Um uh, you know, Ahura w- w- was essentially the first major black female character on television. Um, there was really something going on there. But to fast forward to Next Generation, I, I would say, you know, I-, I guess the character that's the sort of the most politically interesting would be Worf, played by yeah. Michael Dorn. Only As- because he's sort of a metaphor for any number of outsider story I- you know, lines. It can be... You know, any kind of stranger in a strange land type theme, Worf represents that. Um, I would say that I kind of think of Star Trek, the original series, as the nascent stage of a utopian world. And then by the time you get to Next Generation, which takes place, I think, about 70 years later, maybe 100 years later, not so far away that the technology is just light years beyond what uh, the original <laughs> series had. Well, you but, schooled me on the timeline when we were talking about the, the, the movie. Right. I think you were it's like, 70 oh, that's to not that 120 far. years, something like that. Um, yeah. And I kind of think of it as during that time, all of the rawness and the still instability stuff uh, is, is getting worked out 100 years. And so then when you get to the next generation, you've achieved that point where you don't have to be overtly stating anything because – the universe is just kind of internalized finally that this is how the human race is now that you don't need to make a big deal that you've got a Russian person or a Scottish person or that everybody seems to be from a different state or country or whatever. It's just, these are the people on the cast and they all see each other just as their crewmates. And so some of these markers that make us unique, but also make us uh, secluded have all just kind of fallen away. That it's like a post-utopian state is what the next generation is. It's obviously not perfect. They go to wars and blow things up too, but it's as close as you know you'd ever get. Yeah, and um, I think what's interesting, uh, I mentioned to Matt that I was rewatching some of Star Trek VI uh, earlier today in preparation, along with some Deep Space Nine episodes. You look at the aesthetic; it's actually more similar to Battlestar Galactica than the Star Trek TV shows. Any of them? Uh, it, it, it's dark. It's industrial. There's not a lot of light. You know, excessive, o- overly bright lighting that we're so used to from the television shows. Um, you know, you can see the rivets and the metal on the ground, and you know, the camera's a little bit more dynamic. 
uh, I, I don't really know uh, where uh, where they wanted that over-polished look. Uh, I mean, you know, I hate to bring the CW into this, man, but let's be honest, this ended up on the CW ultimately, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, why go from overly polished in the original series to even more so in Next Generation w- with the acknowledgement that Deep Space Nine did try and take it in sort of a darker direction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost too much that it has this really idealistic, over-the-top socialist vision, and it's just physically blown out, where everyone looks the same and is lit the same, and, and, and so forth. Um, you know, how, how does it then gain its depth when when its aesthetics are, are, are a little, um, you know, are a little a, a little shallow? I, I, I would say, uh, maybe we didn't realize at the time. Any thoughts on this whole thing? Um. Sorry, I got a little bit lost in what the question is there. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, you know, I'm, you know, when you watch Next Generation, we were kids. You never think about the fact that it's totally blown out in terms of the lighting, right? And it's it's a three camera, almost like a sitcom. You know, yeah. it's just a set, and they're facing forward, and the cameras are facing the other way. There's no dyna- you know, there, there's no dynamism to it. You watch Battlestar Galactica for five minutes, and, and just to note, Bizzlecast, listen, we are going to talk about some Battlestar here. We have to for so many reasons, as a contrast to the Star Trek shows, Ronald D more we'll get back to him we but do Battle but Star, let's try to keep that yeah. minimal because we have talked about Battlestar so often on, sure. on these podcasts and i've only been on four or five maybe six of them so uh to answer that question whatever the effects are however show looks whatever limitations it has technically you can get past it with good scripts and good stories and what next generation did maybe better than even original series which I think people liked because it was campy and, and, and goofy. I mean, if you watch original series, there's a lot of really goofy shit that happens in that show, and not just in episodes like Trouble for, with Tribbles, where it, which is just a comedy about getting attacked by these little balls of fuzz that eat your food and breed. Um, <laughs> the whole show is pretty goofy and campy intentionally. Next Generation took a real step forward in terms of quality storytelling, in terms of complexity of storytelling, in terms of depth. Um, and I think that's got a lot of people past some pretty shitty special effects, especially in the first couple of seasons. Like, visually, the first couple of seasons of Next Gen are hard to watch because they're so rough looking. So let's jump into this. This is a perfect. This is exactly where I wanted to go, or I wanted the bulk of the podcast to be, which is forget about the sometimes shitty special effects, and forget about you know this bizarre, you know, hard to believe futurist socialist utopia situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I think it was the character beats and the in the moral and ethical issues that that they were dealing with on a dramatic level that ultimately were way more interesting than any you know sort of grand political vision or. Um, uh, or, or, or sort of this airbrushed you know, vision of the future. Like, I guess what I'm saying is, like, the, the moral issues at hand were way more complicated than they they would seem if you just sort of watched the show on mute or something. And just how how blown out it was. You know what I mean? Like, there was real depth going on there. Yeah. And so, where, where are they digging that from? Where are they getting that from? Why why did that speak to so many people? Where they've made essentially what twelve or thirteen Star Trek movies and still going at this point? Go ahead. I think um, I, I think one of the things that speaks that the reason people keep coming back to Star Trek is that it is such an attractive universe for most people. We talked about in the first in the first podcast we ever did. We talked about how maybe 
if you are inherently fearful of government, uh, you know, you're not going to like a centralized, fairly socialist, you know, vision of the future. I think it's fair uh, to say Donald Trump would not be sitting on the United Federation Council. No, I think Donald Trump would probably <laughs> not like Star Trek. Um, <laughs> and knowing him, he would go to a Star Trek convention and tweet about it. And then get something really, really wrong. Like, I loved it when Kirk <laughs> killed the Borg Queen or something like that. Um, uh, no, he'd probably be like, I liked when the, Kirk hooked up with X, Y, and Z. <laughs> no, I, I th- he'd probably get that right. I mean, yeah. if Kirk met a chick on Star Trek, the original series, chances are they probably hooked up. Um, so, uh, but I think the universe for most people is attractive because... There's no poverty. There doesn't seem to be really any racism. There was one last horrible war that they hint at, but they never really do a lot with. Even First Contact, which is basically about the aftermath of World War III, um, which is you know that you're basically left with humans in little clusters because civilization has more or less collapsed. Mm. And these one of them was Zephram Cochran, they build the first faster than light warp first engine. Contact. Yeah, the movie. Just because they've they, they you don't. Said, you said aftermath. You mean first contact? I think you yeah. said aftermath. Yeah, I so. did. It's the oh. aftermath of World War Three. Oh, oh, war oh, with Khan oh, Singh in it. You know, oh, the eugenics war that nearly destroys it. all of humanity. Yes. What you're left with is humans are, are pretty much just living in these kind of clusters surviving off the land because this war has more or less brought humanity to the point of extinction and then they managed to just barely get past that you know scrape together enough material build a faster than light ship and what is it that saves humanity it's science and being welcoming of foreigners because they meet the vulcans and the vulcans you get the sense provide a ton of like material aid in getting the Earthlings back on their feet after World War III. Um, and so, Which was, by the way, an especially annoying part of many in Star Trek Enterprise was the extent to which the Vulcans hated humans so much. It made no sense in the continuity yeah, of that the entire history. The obnoxiousness. I, I mean, there's actually a f- one of the only episodes I really liked was there's a season three episode, which was the last season of the show. It didn't Nobody watched it. Nobody liked oh. it. Uh, where they go to the mirror universe where, you know, the... Ooh, I think, is this like Earth 2? Yeah, but there's been a mirror universe in Star Trek. There's one. Yes. And they, they started going to it in the original series where everybody has a beard. That's how you know they're bad guys. And then <laughs> DS9 does a couple of episodes uh, with the mirror universe. I don't know what its official name is. I always just called it the mirror universe. But in this one they show the real early days of the Federation and the story is different. What happens is when the Vulcans land after detecting Cochrane's FTL ship, Cochrane leads a violent attack on the Vulcan ship. They kill the Vulcans, steal their tech. And mm-hmm. so they basically leapfrog the Vulcans in technology and they subjugate them. And that sets up mm-hmm. kind of the state of the, it, it was an interesting episode. I don't know that it meant anything. No, no, no. But I want to. I want to ride with this. I didn't see that one, but that uh, exactly. It's okay. It had well, the no, Tholian web, which is right. a cool thing in the original series, but the special effects are so terrible that yeah. yeah, exactly. So to see them build a Tholian web using uh, this would have been like two thousand and five ish CGI, as opposed to like drawing a line across a screen, which is what the original Tholian web looked like. 
that was pretty cool. I mean, when they I actually the built cooler it, it's version pretty of neat CGI. Yeah. I thought the cooler version of that idea was the invisible web in Star Trek The Next Generation in the multi-part um, war uh, where the Klingons have a civil war and it turns out the Romulans are supporting uh, like the, one of the sides mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure out how to detect the Romulan you know, warbirds who right. are all cloaked and they create essentially a giant web. You don't see it physically, but they describe it scientifically so interestingly of like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're putting, you know, beams of energy or, or, you know, infrared or whatever all over the place. And if they cross it, we're going to know and they'll, and they'll be revealed. Um, which just goes to show you that great exposition and great acting uh, overwhelms, uh, you know, CGI any day of the week. I, I know we agree about that, but I want to get back to the, this storyline that you said. Uh, not that I care about that particular episode. But that is it really realistic that the reason that the Vulcans would finally come to Earth and let us know that we're not alone and help us with our technology would just be because we hit warp one as opposed to any real ethical or moral development in our society on Earth? Does that make sense? It does. But when you think about it, warp travel is the calling card technology of this entire universe. The entire notion of the Prime Directive is if they don't have warp, don't talk to them. That's what the Prime Directive is, is if they don't have warp tech, they are deemed too primitive to be worth talking to yet, and you just leave them alone. Now, they break that rule all the time on all the different shows, but that's the standard by which this universe has decided to judge who is ready to be part of this intergalactic, not intergalactic, interplanetary federation, and who still's got uh, some time to come. So the building block moment, the first big moment in this universe is the FTL drive, to use the terms from Battlestar, you know, the warp oh, yeah. drive ship that puts humanity in contact with its first alien race. And that's the building block idea of this entire universe is technology is what brings us together and faster than light travel is what defines a species achieving a certain degree of evolution and thus being ready to join with other species to form something like this. And if you think about it practically, if you can't go faster than warp one, there's no way you could practically get to Vulcan anyway. So there's no point in making contact or forming relations with ships, a species that doesn't have ships fast enough to actually make trade and travel possible. Um, but I could argue, and actually Next Generation does deal with this issue, that there are some civilizations that just for resource reasons, you know, can't get as far as they need to go, but are sort right. of mo- morally and societally advanced. And then there's other uh, societies that can get to warp one that are very warlike and, and not particularly advanced. And I think that's a constant tension in Star Trek that's so interesting is that one of the criteria that makes civilizations advanced is technology. But, you know, the Patrick Stewart, you know, moral of the week model, what really makes, it, you know, civilizations advance or what we hope makes civilizations advance are their ethics. Right. And and so it's unclear as to why they wouldn't engage with a, a, a culture that couldn't achieve warp because of lack of resources, but that was a very wise and learned and mature culture versus one that was able to get it. I mean, Zephyrin Cochran was one dude, you know? I mean, yeah. it, it, they, they were coming out of a huge war, and in First Contact, the Star Trek Next Generation movie, which is really the only... G- 
like good, like very good of the next generation movies. I think we can agree. Oh yeah. I, or at least I like that movie a lot. But you I know. think everybody would agree with you that First Contact is. I, I think it's got a lot of flaws, but it's the best of the next gen movies by a, a pretty wide margin. Yeah, and it's very like, self-referential because it's dealing with the hero behind all of Star Trek. You right. know, like it's kind of cool that they meet and they have hero worship for him. I love mm-hmm. that. You know, Jordy yeah. and Riker and everyone—they have such hero w- worship. They even bring Barkley back, which is hilarious. Yeah, uh, from the A team. But um, you know, I mean, at the beginning of that movie, when the Borg start bombarding Earth, they think World War Three is still going on. As far as we know, the you know part of the world is still at war when right. that's all going on. And then the Vulcans come and it changes everything. Right. And you know, you know, I'm very into like cosmology and astrophysics and stuff. I'm very into like the philosophical side of cosmology. And you know, Carl Sagan talked about this a lot in Cosmos and his various books about how he wished for alien contact not because he was a scientist and a cosmologist and, and wanted it to happen so he could see it but because he did think it would change humanity in a Roddenberry-esque way mm-hmm. um, that we are not alone and so that we do have to unite together. It's interesting to think the Vulcans being so peaceful you know, it almost would be more effective for the first contact culture to be warlike and that would be what, you know, what, what brings us together um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, but I think in some ways what makes Star Trek unique is that it is an act of peace that creates this universe, not an yes. act of war. Think about every classic sci-fi thing, really anything, it's almost always war. It's, you know, Independence Day, war. Uh, the day the Earth stood still, you know, I don't think they go to war, but they Starship stop troopers. everything, and, and it's, a, it's an act of domination of look what i can do to your world's technology um to serve man war over and over and over again it's always the first race we meet is warlike and that forces the u.s to uh, not the u.s the humans to grow up basically and learn how to fight this i'm hell the avengers first alien race warlike mm-hmm. um even if you want to say that the first race they ever met were really the asgardians yeah. all they do when they come to earth back in like prehistory is go battle each other and occasionally kill humans for fun and humans and shield as well yeah it's all war and i what i find so appealing with star trek is that it is an inherently peaceful show they'll go to war if you threaten their ships and shit but the building block of this is science and tolerance and peace and that that's universe i would very much get behind so my two favorite characters of the next generation growing up, and maybe we'll structure the majority about this about next generation, although I do want to talk Deep Space Nine because okay. I have been trying to rewatch Deep Space Nine over the last six to 12 months or whatever in, in short spurts right. uh, and really like the concept behind that show and the actors and so forth. But you and I grew up on Next Generation. That's uh, I, it, the best Star Trek show ever that in our lifetime, I think we can say. Yeah, um, although over, I do overall. think um, a lot of the season-long plotting that DS9 got into was actually somewhat ahead of its time and was stuff that shows like Lost and Battlestar Galactica were going to learn could be done because DS9 did it first. I, I think DS9 was actually a little bit ahead of itself oh, yeah. towards the end. The first bunch of seasons are just epi- you know, Alien of the Week, but the last three seasons, when they really start to get into the war with the Dominion, 
that is very long form storytelling that was really not being done all that much in the yeah. mid nineties. I actually would give it more credit. Having seen season one fairly recently, they set up the Dominion, the Cardassians, the Bajorans, all the major players they set up in the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just through the wormhole, but through just the, the, you know, the political geography. And in fact, if you look at the late season credits, you know, Ronald D. Moore, the founder and showrunner of Battlestar Galactica, were involved in a lot of them, either Remake. writing or just producing or coming up with stories or the teleplay, as they called it back then. Um, and, <laughs> you know, if you look at the Bajoran religious culture, it's quite similar to the uh, the, the religious c- cultural aspects of... Um, sort of the semi-Greco-Roman stuff that's going on in Battlestar Galactica. Right, right. Uh, th- that early in Battlestar it is really interesting, and, and later they just uh, trip over themselves trying to explain too much and causes lots of problems. In Star Trek, you kind of ex- expect the explaining. So yeah, I-, I do think it was way ahead of its time. And, and while Ronald D. Moore did write some uh, Next Generation episodes, he really didn't become a senior writer until DS9. And he talks very fondly about that time, even though he specifically wanted to create a show which was the anti-Star Trek. Um, However, Star Trek Next Generation, my two favorite characters were Worf and Data, and they're the two outsiders. I'm, I'm, you know, thinking about it now, I'm wondering if that has to do something with me feeling like an outsider at that time, or just interested in the way that those two are trying to fit in to their society that they're not naturally a part of. Um, what, what really grabbed you about the original series when you look back in terms of your memory of the whole thing? Not the original series, the uh, Next Generation. I was about to say, um, Data and Jordy were my two favorite characters growing up, uh, mm. in part because, I, I mean, simply put, I thought Jordy's visor was the coolest looking thing I'd ever seen. I thought that so was sick. so neat. Um, I liked the idea that, you know, he was blind but in some ways he could see things that nobody else could see because of that. I thought that was a cool um, kind of extended metaphor. And then obviously Data, I liked robots. I got the outsider thing. I like Data always has a little bit of a childlike uh, quality to him because he is learning. He's an adult, obviously. Brent Spiner was an adult at playing the character. But he is trying to learn about humanity in the same way that a little kid learns about humanity of watching the people around him and asking questions and and not being certain all the time and very slowly developing kind of his own personality interests you know turning into a person um and as a kid i could relate a lot to the idea of a character who was also growing up along with me and it felt very much like data grew up as i grew up and in a way that even Wesley Crusher, who ne- I never did anything for me as a character. I never liked him. Will I Wheaton, baby. <laughs> yeah, when he, I, I think Will Wheaton is a. He seems like a very decent guy, and I think he's, he's a hilarious actor. in real life. Yeah, yeah, he, he seems funny. like a pretty cool guy. But yeah. Wesley Crusher was never a character that I gave any shits about. And when no. he finally goes off with the the Walker or the the Traveler, Doctor Who, whatever the hell that guy's name is, the and they go off to explore dimensions. I was like, oh, well, well you're gone. I don't care. Um, so Data was the character that for me, but Wesley literally grew up as, as the show went on. But 
Data was the character that for me was the one who would grow from a kid to an adult as I would as I got older. Yeah. Um, although, quick side note, one of my favorite episodes is the one where, you know, the way they got Will Wheaton as Wesley Crusher off the show was by sending him to Starfleet Academy, which made right. total sense. But one of my favorite episodes is the one where someone dies during a training exercise and his like final exams or whatever, and mm -hmm. they bring in Picard to yep. moderate the whole thing as sort of kind of a judge and a, you know a assessor of the entire situation. That's a very battle starry episode if you look at the themes and what's going on behind it. Well, the uh, way that it's an investigation is yep. really interesting. Um, yep. I, I love. I know exactly what episode you're talking about. I love that episode. Uh, Interesting thing, the guy who plays um, the leader of that team, that's the same actor who would then play Tom Paris on Voyager. Hmm. And his Tom Paris's character, the background is he was booted out of Starfleet um, or the Fet or yeah, for doing something shady. So basically, Nick Lucaro, I think is the name of the character in the episode you're talking about. They didn't want to just rename that. They didn't want to repurpose the exact same character, but they basically, when they were looking to cast Tom Paris, said, well, this guy wants the job, and he already played this exact character just with a different name, so let's make him Tom Paris. Interesting. I know, yeah. I know the actor that you're talking about. Um, but, uh... Also, was it the He-Man movie, which everybody should not see. <laughs> Masters of the Universe, I apologize. It's not called He-Man. Um, yeah, we, we we talked a good deal about data in Bizzlecast thirty. Um, you and I had some disagreements about where AI is going and where it could go. Uh, we don't need to rehash that. Um, I will say though, just to just to pivot to Worf, now that we have to leave data, you know, <laughs> in the Trump world of twenty sixteen, Worf is even more interesting because he would be on like in Trump's world, he wouldn't even be allowed into the country, right? Yeah. I mean, he, uh, he would know. be a symbol of everything Tr he would, Trump would be afraid of. What's great about Worf, though, is, and I always forget this until I think about it, read up about it again, is that you'd think he's half human, but he's not. He's full Klingon. He just happened to be raised by people. Right. By I'm sorry, by, by humans. Yeah, he was a, basically adopted by them, right? Yeah, he was. His parents were killed in the Kittimer massacre, which led to the Kittimer Accords. I can't believe mm -hmm. I remember this stuff. Oh my god, I'm such a nerd. I honestly haven't referenced this. I'm not looking at anything, but I do remember Kittimer and the Kittimer Accords. His parents were killed. He was adopted by humans, and then he had a half hu uh, human, half Klingon son, yep. I believe. Alexander. Alexander. So who was the who was the wife? Who was the woman? I don't know. A human, as I understand it, but yes. uh, I, I don't know what happened to her. I don't know if she died in a conflict. Um, but the way they dialed the kid back... The live yeah. with Worf most of no. the time. I think he grows up with Worf's human adopted parents. parents. Yep, he grows up with the grandparents. Yeah, right on. Um, and, and, and just the interesting way they, they sort of dial back his you know half human son's makeup is very similar to like you know light-skinned black people first dark-skinned black people right you know i mean it's dealing with these racial and ethnic issues which i had no comprehension that they were making commentary on on the at the time and, and maybe they weren't and i'm just reading so much into it i can't believe that that was a coincidence though the 90s being the beginning of sort of the multicultural age right in our society mm-hmm yeah. My problem with Worf was always that even as a kid, I could tell that he was 
in way too many episodes, just sort of there as he struck me as comic relief because he was so serious and so intense. And he was always being there are super cuts of Picard just telling Worf to wait, not return fire, hold on, settle down. He was always the punching bag in that on that bridge. I suppose. I just love the military episode so much, and he's always a major part, especially when it involves the Klingons. Sometimes, but a lot of times, it's also he he wants to fight how a Klingon would fight, and Picard tells him to not do it, and he winds up just doing, you know, running the ship the way Picard tells him to, you know. So, again... I really feel he like leaves, he leaves. To, he leaves to fight for Gowron during the Civil War. I hate does, to admit it. You're yeah. talking about one or two episodes, um, right? But but as you mentioned, it wasn't highly serialized. So when you get a handful of serialized episodes, you gotta you know you gotta hone in on them a little bit in terms of the the politics of what's going on in, in the universe. And Picard ends up apologizing to him and admitting that Worf was right. I think if Picard's the one who eat humble humble pie in that situation. I can't remember. Maybe exactly. that's the one time uh, that happens. But it's ninety nine to one, Picard just telling Worf what to do. Interesting. Okay. So other than sort of the Jordy data relationship, what are the things that kind of stood out for you with the original? Oh, by the way, we haven't talked about Troy at all. She's a brilliant mm-hmm. actress. I mean, she's she's so watchable. They have her in these ridiculous jumpsuits. Right. You know, finally in the movie, she gets to wear the doctor's, you know, blue and black um, mm-hmm. normal uniform <laughs> and not just be like a sex object. But, yeah. you know, she but 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 Marina Sirtis, who, by the way, I think is Greek in real life and has a b- very thick and bizarre accent or something you know or, or no no she's english but she was faking a greek accent or something like she thought that would be good for her character she's apparently very vulgar and funny in real life uh as kind of a potty mouth um and uh as just a very appealing character i mean the fact that they could pull off any romance between her and Riker at all in the series was a miracle uh, looking just at Star Trek being so chaste, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like you know, Battlestar had more sex in in, in, in the pilot than Star Trek had. In, you know, this yeah, entire series. I think Star Trek Next Generation pitched itself as we're going to be de- uh, intentionally a little bit more chaste than the original series was. Where just why do you think that is? You know, maybe to make the product different. Maybe because they didn't want to. It's a culture wars thing? Yeah. Conservatives? It could have been that, you know, that they. I don't know. I don't know what. She was undeniably hot. I mean, let's be honest. Troy was hot, and Gates McFadden is also gorgeous as as Dr. Crusher. uh, A very kind of. um, I'm not sure how to put this. She's very pretty, but not in a necessarily like really alluring sexy way which is fine because you're supposed to see her as a doctor and she's a very very good doctor she always reminded me of well this is retroactive continuity in my brain i i I always thought that um sophie turner as sansa stark reminded me of like a young gates mcfadden that that sort of redheaded that's the red hair i mean that could be yeah but but no but what you're describing that's sort of a traditional beauty but that's not sort of hot you know what i mean like um well, they the clothing. I mean, a lot of that is also what the costume clothing. is, and her doctor's garb was functional, and yep. it gave off the air of knowledge. You know, of like she knew what she was talking about, 
Whereas, yeah, Marina Sirtis wore these skin-tight, dark purple kind of things that didn't look very, like, officer-y. You know, they, they looked like something that somebody you're supposed to stare at wears. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, what, what's interesting is in order to get these actors and these characters uh, that put a new light on them, you had to have bizarre episodes dealing with time travel or the, you know, hollow, uh, holodeck or, you know, you had to come up with these bizarre scenarios in order to get them dressing and acting and looking different. Um, I believe it was the season four or five finale. Uh, it was the uh, Mark Twain yeah. Uh, double or triple episode where they go to double. like, yeah, Earth in the 18th century, and involving Whoopi Goldberg and uh, and some sort of space time portal. Awesome, I love that, and that's the thing. And they they, they pulled Data off like playing the, poker. I could watch Data play poker just for hours with the, with the, with the visor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, <laughs> the dealer the visor on. Uh, yeah. Uh, dude, what's amazing about Brett Spiner is he never broke character for a split second in the entire seven uh, uh, seasons of. I mean, he was con- he was always walking and talking and acting and moving and looking like Data at every single second. I don't know how he pulled that off. I don't. It's it's such a high level of difficulty mm-hmm. um, with his body. But yeah, but like you said, like Data playing poker, your favorite episode, Data's Day. Um, you know these sort of lower budget more character you know drama development or even comedic kind of episodes right um and i think what deep space nine uh, did so well uh, in addition to making it more serialized which at least now makes it way more interesting for me i don't remember at the time if i knew the distinction between serialized and unserialized at a conscious level but is that they were able to have some goofy, funny episodes, but they didn't have to rely on time travel and holodecks and stuff like that. Like, there are some Deep Space Nine episodes where it's just, it's just comedy, the way they talk and the way they shoot it, and they're just, you know, in their normal environment. Um, and I think that, again, we don't have to talk too much about Battlestar, but yeah, there's like a direct line from Next Generation to Deep Space Nine to Battlestar, but then when they did Voyager and then Enterprise after... Deep Space Nine, they didn't seem to really learn the lessons of of Deep Space Nine, as far as I can tell. Thoughts? Well, I think some of it has to do um, with just the people that they had behind the programs. It wasn't... I don't remember when Gene Roddenberry died, but he did not have anything okay. to do with Star Trek Voyager, for instance. Okay. You know, I, I know this. I know this just because. I'm sorry. I know this just because I watched the first third of Undiscovered Country, and they actually say in memoriam to Gene Roddenberry during the opening credits, not the closing credits. So it happened sometime leading up to the 91 release of Star Trek VI: Undiscovered Country. Okay, sorry, yeah, and I just yeah. look at, looked it up. He died October 24, 1991. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I'm honestly not even sure Deep Space Nine had started by that point. Nope. Um, so Deep Space Nine was really good. I believe. And Rick Berman yeah. did run both, was a showrunner for that show and for Voyager. But for whatever reason, by the time they got to Voyager, just either Berman, his mind had started to go. I'm, I'm not suggesting he has anything actually neurologically wrong with him. I'm joking. Um, but by that point, the it just seemed like the the crew they had put together to run this show, and then Enterprise after that was increasingly less original, less interesting, less creative. Um, 
you know, they created a character called Seven of Nine, which was just an attractive woman in a spandex Lord. suit. Um, and then they made the whole show about her. Like, mm -hmm. I was a 16-year-old boy. I liked watching Jerry Ryan dressed up as Seven of Nine as much as everybody else. But I got <laughs> pissed off very quickly that every goddamn episode, once they introduced her, was about her. Like, there were whole characters who got no character development once she was put on the show. Um, uh, quick, quick, quick side note. Yeah. Um, the appeal of the Borg, both to the creators and to the fans, mm -hmm. do you think it's just because it tapped into cyberpunk culture, which in the 90s was already way more relevant than sort of old school Star Trek's um, uh, space opera type stuff? Or do you think it was uh, just coincidental um, in terms of you know human, biological, mechanical modification, et cetera, et cetera? I think we were definitely starting to have some fears about that, about that we would kind of lose ourselves in technology. Um, obviously, the Matrix is kind of what crystallized that fear the most, I would say, concretely. But I think also our fears of robotics have been set up since iRobot was written. I mean, yep. so the idea, it's more a question of I can't believe they never thought to have robotic bad guys in the original series because on doctor who i think the first season of the show back in 65 they introduced the cybermen or maybe the second season you know who are basically the borg but less cool they are big robots who like to take humans and stick them in robot suits and turn them into robots they're basically the borg they're just dorkier like on a, on a they're really really dorky looking especially right. early on so obviously as British people were afraid of robots conquering humans for 50 years before Roddenberry and the next-gen people came up with the Borg. Yeah, I think there are a few reasons the Borg uh, were so great and so loved and were so well-written when they came in. One, they were restrained. You know, It could have been easy to do entire seasons about the Borg, and they resisted that temptation. Yeah. Two, the aesthetics were amazing. I mean, the prosthetics that they worked on with the Borg characters, especially when you see Patrick Stewart as Lacutus of Borg, mm -hmm. I mean, it was really top of the line, you know? I, I, it, you couldn't believe it was from the same budget, you know? I mean, they could barely, you know, manage a CGI spaceship, but these Borg costumes and, and, and prosthetics were, were so fascinating. Three, I think it does, yeah, it, it tapped into the transhumanist cyberpunk culture. Um, but also they were fascinating because they weren't evil, you know, it's right. easy, to, you know, I mean, it's easy to rally support against like Nazis, you know, or whoever it's easy to rally support against someone who is truly evil or you portray as evil. Right. They were completely like the amoral. The original series. Like the Klingons or the Romulans in next generation or the Cardassians and the, um, yeah. Although and, uh, I don't Space think Nine. either the Romulans or the Cardassians are ever portrayed as uniformly bad guy as the Klingons are in the original series. True. I mean, just in the way that they're like the mustaches and the beards, it's all very, very Svengali. You're the bad guy. We're the good guy kind of a thing. And obviously it's probably a Cold War metaphor in there, too. Sure. Um, so I, I don't think, you know, the Cardassians and the Rom Romulans always are portrayed with more complexity. I think maybe that's one thing people like about Star Trek is how complex most of the quote-unquote bad guys on the show are. Can I throw a question uh -huh. at you? Yeah. Is it possible that 
the Federation is the future that we want, but the Borg is the future that we're seemingly headed towards I don't, in I terms of assimilation and technology and so forth? I wouldn't say seemingly heading towards because I, I think it's way, way, way too early to make any kind of statements like that. Right, well, at least, at least a, I fear, a, a fear of people that we're headed towards a culture where we're dominated by technology and are assimilated into something greater that we have no control over. Yes, I think that is absolutely something that we're afraid of, whereas you have these two – they're both utopian in their own way. I mean the Borg don't have any real problems within their society – they're all, you know, there's no violence, there's no poverty, there's no starvation, there's no war within the collective. So they have found an entirely other way to achieve peace for their entire species, which is there are more Borg. Once you get to um, Voyager and they find the home world of the Borg, the home area where they're from in the Delta mm. Quadrant. There are as many Borg or more so than humans. I mean, it's a massive population, and they have achieved the exact same end goal the humans did, just via a radically different um, process. In terms of uh, your earlier question about what makes the Borg work, I think it also helps that even though they are not evil, they are terrifying. And every time they show a human taken over by the Borg nanorobots it's body it's a horror movie i mean they're screaming in pain as these i mean i i thought first contact did this wonderfully you know where you can see these black veins shooting into their brains and under their skin it, mm -hmm. it's you know they make the process so terrifying to behold that of course you'd be afraid and thus sort of compelled and interested in the bad the borg bad guy um and I think the next generation was smart in that they, they teased what the Borg were and how they used them until finally it all culminates in, in Farpoint. Um, not Farpoint. Um, God damn it. Wolf 359. Yeah. You know, the Locutus episodes. Uh, the best of Which both worlds. Which is what spawned Deep Space Nine, that whole thing, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, but I, that's a two parter. I think it's called The Best of Both Worlds, right? Yep. I think you're right on that one, yeah. Okay. So Wolf 359 and those two episodes are fantastic. And finally, it's the Borg revealed in all its terrifying splendor. And I, I think and that the is the fact right. that one Borg cube could take out hundreds of Federation yeah, ships. right. You know, I mean, that's you know, the thing. I mean, it was the, you know, it's like Sauron in Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's just this single undefeatable enemy. And then you or start the thinking, wow. in fear of the old ones, you know, because the, the Borg are very unknowable. They don't understand yeah. very much about them at all um, until later in the show when they finally meet some and get to talk to them. But they're they? terrified of these all-powerful giant things. So I never saw that Voyager episode where they go to the home world. Do they ever explain how the whole hive mind evolution thing came to be? I mean, was it like a singularity type situation? I don't know that they land on the exact planet where the Borg got started. They come to the where the Borg Collective is based out of, and it's a whole chunk of space. Um, so they don't, they, they don't explain it to like an AI singularity type event that launches it because right. that, that would be the logical way to go but in the 90s i just don't know where that where their heads were yeah no i i am remembering one vague episode vaguely i'm remembering one episode about they encounter these people who have 
Borg implants in them, but they are not Borg. They are like they're hu- they're humanoid. You know, they're they're from the Delta Quadrant, but they're humanoid. But I seem to recall that episode highly hints at that all these people got together and tried to come up with a way to save their species. And the way they decided to do it was if they put these telepathic implants in their brain, they'll be able to talk to each other instantaneously and they can work together to form a collective and solve the problems of their species. And what's heavily implied is that this is the technology that gave birth to the Bohr Collective and ultimately was what doomed everybody. Um, because, but I, I could be remembering that episode wrong. I, yeah. I've only ever seen any given episode of Voyager once, and the later episodes I don't remember all that well except how the show ends. Um, oh, oh, I just uh, – because the, the sort of hive mind way that they operate – is right. more similar to the insect-like uh, aliens of uh, – I'm talking about books now um, – Starship Troopers. Ender's Game. Or Ender's Game or the, yeah. the video game Starcraft right. or um, Old Man's War uh, series by John Scalzi, who's sort of a modern uh, sci-fi. I is. I've never read the Old Man's War books, but Red Shirts is fucking hilarious. Great, and, and the old man's war books are so fun. You can read it in like two days. It's I've fabulous. They're really good. Um, they're very funny because they're old people in young people's bodies. It's quite funny, but also scary. And, and, and they also have the hive mind thing going. You know, it's the ultimate enemy. It's like, how do we, no matter how hard we, maybe that's part of it, was that, you know, part of what's great about the Star Trek Next Generation crew and that whole universe was everyone was working in concert together for higher goals right. of technological advancement, of moral advancement, of, you know, know intellectual advancement you know science and whatever but we could never possibly compete militarily with a true hive mind situation where they're all controlled centrally unless we could get to the 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 hive mind um and and destroy it you know that's the whole independence day thing that's avenge the first avengers movie you know you blow up the mothership and everyone dies blah 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 but because the borg were not only humanoid but specifically going after humanoid species that's what made them really scary i think yeah, no, I, I would probably agree with that. Uh, and, and, and as you pointed out, it's like horror filming. You never see that on Star Trek. I mean, but let's be honest. The horror filming of, of the Borg in First Contact is even well beyond anything on the television show. I mean, they go full because they can go PG-13. They, there's some really scary screaming and stuff in, in First Contact. As a kid, I'm saying. Definitely. You know, yeah, um, and that's what's brilliant about that movie is you get you get like Ridley Scott, you know, alien esque like horror sci fi, and then you get this really cute, funny, humanistic story on the ground with God. What's his name? Who plays Efren Cochran? He's such a great character actor. I always forget his uh, name. Yeah, him. he's so fabulous. He's either won Academy Awards or been nominated for them. He's like a legit guy. Um, but uh, the, I think that movie, you know, really summed up everything that was great as movies go about the series, I think looking back, as we've talked about, the episodes that stick with us are the ones that deal with important moral issues or just character studies like Data's Day. And, you know, the techno babble just falls away. Mm -hmm. And I think the greatest strength and weakness of Star Trek is the techno babble because ultimately... Look, you and I have pointed out that in the movies, the techno babble is almost irrelevant and not a major part of it at all. No, in not any of the movies. In the slightest. Especially the new ones, but really all the movies. Mm-hmm. But even in the TV series, 
the most interesting part when they when they meet some new bizarre alien species, they can talk technobabble for twenty minutes, but it's the moral decision of Picard and the other characters that that's what's truly interesting about it. Um, and I have to think. You know, forget about the Trekkies and the Comic-Con people or whatever. Although these days Comic-Con mainstream, so I don't want to make any judgment. I'm sure a lot of listeners go to Comic-Con. I support Comic-Con. You could dress up as Data, whatever you want to do. But the point being, I think the majority of people who like Star Trek like it for those uh, complex issues as opposed to some sort of fetishization of technology. Or perhaps I'm wrong. Maybe it is about the fetishization of technology. With any group where there are, you know, tons of people that like it, People are going to sure. like it for different reasons, so I, I'm not going to say that you know more like it for because it fetishizes tech or because well, me, it can, doesn't. Can I phrase this as a specific question? Yeah. So you don't you don't have to make character judgments. What what has made Star Trek more than just a really 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 niche cultural phenomenon? I mean, it obviously does well enough in its various formats to continue to have more movies and series. And by the way, mm-hmm. quick tease, Bizzlecast listeners, as we move in towards the close, we're gonna really um, we're gonna do a little talk about the new movie and the new supposed series that's coming out. So they're still producing this stuff. I'm arguing that the, the the majority, not the hardcore fans, but the majority who go to the theater, who turn on the TV occasionally, who look on it on Netflix, are doing it for character reasons, doing it for you know uh, the complex ethics and the you know and, and the the scientific issues, not the techno babble, but the sort of broader you know uh, un- ideas, and, and not some obsession with a technological power. But perhaps I'm wrong. There's, I mean, the truth is that it's both. You know, there are people who will watch the show. And they are watching it to see if, you know, a certain corridor is depicted the right way or, you know, that stuff all exists. And, you know, the people who are really nitpicking over the details of the show, people like this universe because they like it and they want to keep going back to it in any form. Um, Maybe that's because the message appeals to them, you know, this peaceful socialist kind of vaguely hippie-ish future where there's no money and no capitalism. Um, maybe they yeah, just like the show. It's though, because it's... Dude, let's be no, honest. It, it's, a mer- it's a hard meritocracy. Um, we don't know what, where the failed people are. We never yeah, hear about the people the who failed. the visual aesthetic of what Starfleet Academy is like, I mean, right. it, it's in San Francisco, for one, I mean, which is interesting in and of itself. I mean, Not of a all coincidence. The, you know, what... Not a coincidence. You're no, right to well, point wait, that out. Of, of all the places they could set it, San Francisco, yep. to me that says something about you know what the show's kind of vibe was going to be. Um, and the whole place, there's gardens, and there's a guy who's paid to tend the garden, and he's like, everybody knows him, uh, Boothby. He shows up in that episode you are talking about where they're investigating why the pilot died in on uh, Wesley's team. Um, and then he shows up again as sort of a, an alien impersonating him in Enterprise. So two decades later, they were still bringing that character back because the gardener at Starfleet Academy is something people really latched onto. Um, why that is, I, I mean, I, I, everybody comes to it from a different reason. I like the universe. I like the message that if we embrace people who are different from ourselves and put all of our as much faith as we can in our in our own belief and believe in our ability to, to solve our own problems through reason and science and not 
over-reliance on combat or seclusion or isolationist tactics, um, you know, we might actually be able to save ourselves. I like that message. I like that message a lot. Um, and yet, as you've pointed out, Firefly and Serenity by Joss Whedon right. poses a challenge to that very theory that also claims to be humanistic and claims that the the humanist thing to do is to have some chaos, to have some lack of control, to have some lack of authority. Yeah. And so the question really is, can we evolve to the point where we just accept authority blindly? Now, you know, Next Generation deals with this well and the fact that Patrick Stewart does buck authority fairly yeah. regularly, considering the circumstances. He's also the most powerful and best, you know, uh, captain in the fleet with the best ship in the fleet. But, right. it, you know, but, but he does buck authority. And so, you know, they, they, they do make it clear that not everyone in Starfleet is doing the right thing. And it's not always because their minds are being controlled by earwigs or whatever. You know, I mean, there are, <laughs> a, a, there are actual splits. But Joss Whedon's notion of chaos as as the truly humanistic uh, solution, mm-hmm. I think is a real challenge to that future and whether we can really trust that level of authority. And man, I hate to make the comparison, but being a huge fantasy nerd right. growing up, and I've read fantasy from all different perspectives, but most of the best sort of high fantasy, as they call it, the Tolkien-esque fantasy, mm-hmm. you spend most of your time with people of the nobility yeah. uh, and higher, just like Game of Thrones, just like Tolkien. I mean, they're mm-hmm. all princes and so yeah. forth in, in Tolkien. They're all princes and princesses. And, and Starfleet, it, it, as we see it, is basically the same thing. I mean, we see the brightest and best and most powerful and most ambitious and, and, and furthest, you know, uh, succeeding people. And we don't see anyone else, which is why the portrayal by Chris Pine of young Jim Kirk in Iowa, pre-Christopher Pike in the first Star Trek reboot, is really the most complex person in any Star Trek property ever, as far as I can tell. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is this idea of whether or not, you know, Kirk, well, you were saying Picard, but Kirk is the same way, follows authority figures or not. No, he does break rules fairly frequently, in fact. But the central message, I think, of Star Trek is that if you want to create change, you can create it from within. That you don't have to form a violent rebellion to fight the bad guys. You can join up and make the changes from within and thus become a leader worthy of having the world, you know, of having people put their trust in you. Whether or not it's blind trust or not, I, I'd argue that's semantics. But I think one of the central things that I really like about Star Trek is it suggests that we actually can have leaders who are worthy of, if not blind loyalty, then at least being given a pretty heavy, um, you know, benefit of the doubt, which is more than I, I, yeah. And, and, and and following Picard's example, they are constantly questioning themselves. Yeah. Even, even hotheads like Riker, you know, ultimately have, have some insecurities and are questioning themselves, which makes it believable and makes it work. But, you know, again, the, the Whedon Firefly galaxy, there are no aliens. It's just humans against humans. So it, it's right. almost not comparable. You know, like, for example, if it, a bunch of aliens showed up in the Firefly universe, you know, perhaps the alliance would loosen some of their reins and it would go in a different way, you know? Because uh, so as you pointed out early on, it, it's the contact with extraterrestrials that launches this whole socialist enterprise in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there is a materialism about it, you know? They do fetishize the technology. I remember looking at those pads. You know how we talked about, you know, when the first iPads came out, how it yeah. was like, it felt like Star Trek, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I remember that. I remember exactly what the little computer banks look like. The phasers were so cool. Yeah. The transporter. I mean, there is a physical materialist fetishization going on there. And you know what I mean by fetishization. Right. It's we also, talked about it's this. just a, yeah. there is a, a physically, a, interesting you know there's a visual style to star trek even if its ships are a little bit kind of stripped down and i think people just like the the visual appeal of it i mean all right can we nerd out for a sec here just to just to lessen the 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 intellectual tension that we're creating with our brilliant ideas i would Um, argue we have never not been nerding out but uh, (laughs) go ahead Okay, so what's a more realistic mothership for the future? A ship like the Enterprise, where it's just a single ship that's extremely powerful with all sorts of weapons, mm-hmm. or the Battlestar Galactica slash Star Wars model, where you have a mothership, but you launch a lot of smaller ships to fight the actual battles out in space, in addition to the mothership's fighting? It would probably have something to do with how plentiful resources are in the future. I mean, I would argue that from simply a keep-people-alive standpoint relying on things like phasers and photon torpedoes is probably a heck of a lot safer than constantly sending a limited supply of highly trained pilots to do your fighting for you. So if you can fight in an unmanned capacity or in a remote capacity, say with photon torpedoes and phasers, that is safer um, and probably, uh, and it's obviously going to cost less man hours to train people how to fly, to shoot a rocket than it would to fire a, uh, how to drive one of those, uh, what are they called? Vipers? Um, Vipers. the little, yeah. But if resources are hard to come by, then yeah, you're probably going to be relying on a more kind of an aircraft carrier style of combat where you house all the little ships they don't need a ton of resources to maintain. You just got to have somebody that knows how to fly them. Yeah. What I love about Battlestar, though, is it kind of combines both because mm-hmm. they launch the Vipers, but at the same time, you get like hundreds of ordinances firing from all sides of the Galactica. That's true. Setting up like a, almost like a shield of advanced fire to mm-hmm. take out both the nukes that are being fired at them as well as the incoming um, Cylon Raiders. Um, yeah, Star Wars makes no sense. Also, as we've pointed out before many times, the uh, you know the physics of Battlestar is part of what makes the space combat great because it's way more realistic the way the the Vipers move around. But the thing is, they retcon the entire thing in the first Star Trek reboot because in that very first battle where it's the uh, USS um, oh shit that George Kirk was on um, this it's not the, the Enterprise C. No, no, no. It wasn't oh, an Enterprise. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, crud. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah so, so Chris Hemsworth as Kirk's father, George, um, in a much less advanced ship, even from the original trilogy, right. um, they had phaser banks going out the wazoo left and right. It was way more Battlestar. You know, the, the firework spectacle, as I talked yeah. about. It was way more Battlestar style. And, and I, I think that's why Battlestar is ultimately the most realistic, because you do, would have your capital ship firing all over the place, but you'd need some smaller ships to, you know, get in and do some surgical stuff. You know what I mean? You probably um, would, although I would get the sense that when you reach a warp te- you know capable technology the amount of instances where you're in combat with something that close is probably actually much rarer you know if you can program 
missiles to fire while you're running away at warp speed? Why would you ever actually engage in close combat? Right. Basically, you're saying you replace the replace the Vipers with drones, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Battlestar gets around that by having it be a totally different technological universe. But yeah, in our universe, yeah, you'd think it would be drone ships or whatever yeah. uh, that they're sending out. Certainly, the fireworks spectacle with the Vipers is way more interesting than watching a single phaser bank from the Enterprise to shoot the Romulans. But when you're a little kid and it's 1992, it's pretty fucking cool. I love the Romulans, man. I thought they were a great bad guy. You know, I, 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 thought so I really too. did. What worked about them, and people have... Uh, I'm not the first one who's going to point that out. The giant Warbird ships, Mm. they only ever – they are so cool looking, but there are so few instances where the uh, Enterprise actually engages in combat with one. I think it's not until like the last episode of the – maybe the second to last season or something. And up until then, until then, it's just this thing is here. And then they run away. You know, one of the thing, the major differences between Battlestar and uh, Star Trek is Battlestar, and you can hear it in the name of the show, is a very militaristic show. It's a fairly militaristic society, which is not out of keeping with a society vaguely based on Greek and Roman mythology. And it is mostly about combat missions, even if there are lots of interpersonal plots and things like that as well. The Enterprise isn't out there to fight. It never. They never want to fight. They just sometimes do wind up fighting. Um, and I think that's a fundamental difference between the shows. So the battle st- a battle star is built to go into battle. The Enterprise is built to be a self-sustaining vehicle for deep space travel that can house long-term science experiments, that can house children and let the children grow up you know, it is built to do all of these things that a Battlestar isn't really supposed to be built for. They're just stuck with it because all the other ships get blown up at the start of the show. Um, so that show is about adapting a setting that isn't built for domestic stuff, for lack of a better word. Into uh, You know, it's just built for combat. Star Trek is about a ship kind of built for domestic and peaceful purposes that occasionally has to go into combat. And I think one of the ways the show skirts around the shitty special effects is it doesn't do a lot of space fighting um, because that's a hard effect to make look like anything good, especially back in like the early 90s when that show was out. Absolutely. It's hard to see the jump from the end of DS9 in 99 to the Battlestar miniseries in 2003. Right. Um, I, I've told you my whole theory or just observation that it, it all changed around 1999-2000 between The Matrix and the Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings movies. I yeah. mean, there was some huge jump in 99-2000-2001 in CGI effects. Yep, where definitely. Y- you could do things in 2003 that you just couldn't do in even the late 90s. And so that's not really their fault. And the fact that they screwed up Enterprise so badly just shows what a wasted opportunity. That should have been a dark Battlestar type show. you know. And they, and they totally screwed up that, that opportunity to do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, the thing is, the ship designs were, were great. But the thing is, you watch Return of the Jedi. If you watch Return of the Jedi, like right at the beginning of the final attack... When mm-hmm. they all jump in, the number of different capital ships <laughs> that are designed and modeled, it, 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 you know, it, there are more in that that twenty minutes of sh- of actual film than in all of the Star Trek shows. 
and they look spectacular. And they spawned video games and comic books and books. I mean, all, you know, I mean, there was just, you know, there's sort of a uniformity about Star Trek. But I think that was part of what was, you know, addictive or at least just sort of um, comforting about it was you sort of did know what you were going to expect a little bit, you know, each week. Um, and, and that you had seen these ships before and you had seen some of these characters before. And, you know, so you ran with things when they bring back... Um, What's her name? Who died and then came back as a Romulan? Um, Tasha. Oh, Tasha, Tasha Yar. Denise Crosby's uh, character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, was that her? Is that her daughter? I always forget. I don't remember Tasha Yar ever coming back as she, a. Her, she came back as a Romulan who was related to Tasha Yar. I just don't remember what the relationship was. Uh, I I don't remember. I don't. She's know. like the baby. Anyways, so um. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Star Trek's just out there. It's a lot easier to. Oh, and this was this was one last major point, and then we can head to the wrap up here. Is that um, if you look at sort of big picture, uh, big idea science fiction, mm-hmm. it, it's either all in the next hundred to one hundred and fifty years, or it's like thousands of years from now, right? So, you know, uh, and so Dune is like thirty thousand years from now. Um, you know, if you know Ian Ian Banks, that writer is like tens and tens of thousands of years from now. Or if you have like cyberpunk, or you know, even something like The Martian, or a little bit more futuristic, it's like in the next hundred years. So it was kind of groundbreaking to have something take place four hundred years from now, mm-hmm. because it, it's far enough out that you can let your imagination run wild, but it does put some restrictions on what you can do. Now you had to accept faster than light travel. You know, right. you had to just accept that. You know, and you still have to if you're going to do any of this stuff. But but again, going back to the transhumanism stuff, people still look like people. They're not being modded until yep. th- they meet the Borg. You know, they still want to be people and act like people, and that's what makes them relatable. And I think that was very brave of, of Roddenberry and very visionary um, to, to, to to take that sort of mid future uh, vision. If that makes sense, you, any thoughts on that? I mean, some of these things that we're talking about, about these fears of modding humans and what that would mean, all of those things, I think, started a little bit later in human history than when Roddenberry started to come up with his idea. I mean, we were, you know, his ideas, I think, were yeah, really Yeah, but the born. fact is, uh, sorry, I got to interrupt. The fact that the Borg showed up at the exact same year that Ghost in the Shell came out, I, I you know, I mean, maybe it's a coincidence. Yeah, in different countries, I mean... Yeah, but goes in the shell. I mean, you know, real science fiction people were looking into Japanese stuff, you know, well before the 90s. Um, Yeah, I I don't know that the people watching and making Star Trek weren't necessarily all that into uh, anime and knew what Ghost in the Shell was at the time. I have a hard time thinking Gene Roddenberry knew what Ghost in the Shell was. But cyberpunk became uh, an accepted very well-read science fiction genre in the mid to late 80s going into the 90s, including Americans like William Gibson um, and, you know, and uh, and that whole genre. Um, Yeah, and it could be argued that that movement was sort of a synthesis of Western sci-fi like Star Trek and Doctor Who and Eastern's... No, no, no. What I'm saying is the things that kind of coalesced into the cyberpunk movement... Right. combination of sort of the western sci-fi style of yes. mostly Star Wars and Star Trek and Doctor Who and then the eastern Aunt Japanese stuff like Ghost in the Shell and then all kind of came together into 
cyberpunk. Um, I don't necessarily, I mean, I wasn't sure where you were going with that, but. No, no, you nailed it. I was just talking about, you know, the different cultural influences that were coalescing in the 90s as opposed to the original series. Yes, I get why people might have latched was onto it, maybe, but that wasn't at all why people latched onto the original Star Trek. And it should be remembered, yeah. the original Star Trek was only on the air for a couple of seasons and did not ever really get a ton of ratings hits. You know, it, sure. it went off the air and then it went back on the air after a couple of years, as I recall. Um, yeah, and, and Battlestar was able to skirt it, too, because the bad guys were robots, but they were robots who not only looked like humans, but wanted to be human. And so right. they got around that whole thing. The Matrix really dealt with it head on, um, where you know where, where you did have people who were modded against their will. And not only that, but you could only have the people who were modded go back into the Matrix because they were designed in the first place. So the real humans couldn't even be involved with it or whatever. And that's a direct, I mean, the Wachowskis have said openly, it's a ghost in the shell knockoff, essentially. Um, right. But, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I guess um, to lead us in, to the end here, we've talked about how there aren't that many great space opera type sci-fi properties at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got Star Trek, you've got Star Wars, you've got the Firefly universe, and now you've got Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, that's basically it, right? Uh, yeah. But I, I would argue that the Serenity movie in 05, the Star Trek reboot in 09, and Guardians of the Galaxy in 2014 are, are three of the best ever for me. I mean, those are probably my three personal favorite, like, in my lifetime, adult lifetime, you know, big epic sci-fi movies are those, are those three. I don't know how much longer they can sustain it, and I think, you know more near future science fiction like minority report are way more interesting and socially relevant um and so uh i don't know i mean is there is there a future for space opera or is it just an escapist fantasy like 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 um like like old school tolkien fantasy at this you know at this juncture it is an escape fantasy but it's one we're gonna have i, I don't see an a, a fascination with the idea of getting off this planet and just saying goodbye to everything and starting fresh on some other planet, there are always going to be, I think, a lot of people who are fascinated with that idea right up until we actually start doing it. And even then, you know, whatever the first colony on another planet, probably the moon or Mars, is going to be like, it ain't going to be like Star Trek. So even then, we're still going to be dreaming of this utopian interplanetary thing uh, that's so much more rad- radically different from what the reality of it is. Um, but then you've got Guardians of the Galaxy, which just uses the genre to serve a comic book purpose, essentially. Well, yeah. But that speaks to the strength of the overall escape fantasy, I think, is that mm-hmm. it is so pervasive that even when you make a comedy making fun of it, people are still drawn to it. You it's know, true, they still I, want to yeah. escape into a world where they are being made fun of for wanting to escape into that world. Right. But, but I think you and I would agree that the least compelling part of Guardians of the Galaxy was the space opera stuff, the spaceship stuff, that the character stuff, you know. I don't know that w- I found w- anything about it not compelling, but... Well, you know, okay. I mean, like the, the whole final battle, you know, yeah. was just like, we want to have a Star Wars-esque final battle. I think that's a know? Marvel problem, not a space opera problem. Or I guess I, I would say a Disney very problem. Well. Or a Disney problem, whatever you want to call it. You know, yeah. Act 3 in Marvel Cinematic Universe movies is usually yeah. the shittiest act. I would say Act 3 in almost any movie is the shittiest. Um, 
Well, one of the reasons among sci-fi films, I love Rings Minority Report. Well. What's that? Lord of the Rings ends pretty well. I would yeah, say the well, third act in all three of those movies is the best. Yeah, but that was A, based on one of the greatest works of literature ever, and B, yeah. you know, just brilliantly produced movies, definitely. I agree with that for sure. Um, okay, a couple quick hits, and then we'll wrap up. Um, really quickly, man, <clears throat> just a sidetrack for a minute. Did you get a chance to listen to my Rogue One podcast? And what are your thoughts about this whole uh, uh, snafu that's apparently going on at Disney about it being too dark and blah, 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 blah? I don't know that you're going to like my thoughts. No, uh, I want I you to f- disagree with me. Go ahead. To be totally honest, I think you are way, way, way jumping to conclusions without okay. any idea of what the final product is actually going to be. I told you this when you told me you wanted to do this, that if – Rogue One turns out to be good, then we're going to say all of whatever those changes start the comp- Disney made either were for the better or they didn't hurt the movie. If it sucks, then yeah, we're going to look back on this and say, hmm, I wonder if they mucked with it too much. But we don't know what the original was. We only know what the original trailers were. And that's not enough to judge what a mov- if a movie is going to be good or not. And from Civil War, we know that a trailer can way over-inflate how good a film was. It might wait, wait, be- hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I love the trailer, and my entire commentary was based not on the trailer, but on news that they were reworking a lot exactly. of the movie. Exactly. Your conclusion that this movie is, that Disney is making a mistake, they're doing the wrong thing, they're being too restrictive and draconian with directors mm. as evidenced by them doing this is based off of your assumption from the trailer that it's gonna be it was gonna be a good movie. It was a good trailer, and now they're fucking with it in some way to make it different. We kind of assume that it, whenever a studio interferes, it usually makes the product worse, which does happen a fair amount. But I think the the info that you're drawing on uh, is not nearly enough to justify the conclusion that. They are taking way too. They're being way too tough on directors. They're not letting anybody do their own thing anymore. Um, yeah, you know. it was really coming from a different place. I like the, tra- the 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 trailer. I don't love it, but I like that they were going darker. My concerns were that a Disney has like a threshold of darkness which they won't go past. As let's be honest, and, and I brought this up in that podcast with Civil War. I mean, you and I were both disappointed with some aspects of Civil War, and yeah. one of them was the political shallowness of it, and the fact that the tone was darker than the actual message or whatever behind the movie. Um, and this was the case with Batman to even a huger degree was that the tone was extremely dark, but the movie itself was completely, you know, pointless and superficial. Um, yeah, I, I don't care if it's good or not. I just hope if it's bad, it's. I do. Or, well, no, I do too. But I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying, as as a podcaster, as an observer, I want right. it to be good. And if it's good in the way I want it to be, I'll be thrilled. If it's good in the way Disney wants it to be, I will also be thrilled if I like it. But if it's bad, I hope it's bad because of its own merits and not because Disney was tinkering with it unnecessarily. That was really my main point. Right, um, but I think basically my my thought is just that you kind of jumped on the first announcement that there were reshoots and then every no, I time waited, I, I waited for the, I know I, that's not true. I waited for the second round. Yeah. Where sources were confirming and double confirming. That was the case. They, they've admitted they're reshooting 40%. I, I, I'm just reporting what they've admitted. Uh, I don't know. I, 
the consensus of the stories I've read suggests that what exactly Disney is reshooting and what they aren't is very unclear. And that can, can, can you at are- least agree with me though that looking at the Marvel and Star Wars stuff in the last couple of years, that we should be a tiny bit concerned about over homogenization of all of this stuff. Everything tonally starting to feel exactly the same. Yes, completely. Yeah. Um, you know, I one of my friends who does a movie podcast uh, pointed out that this movie. You can plug and- it, by the way, if you want. All right, uh, my friend. Chris, who's part of Boston Online Film Critics Association, his podcast is called Spoiler Peace Theater. Mm. They will talk about how movies end, which I like because then I don't have to see the movie. You know, if they talk about a movie I know I'm going to see, I'll I'll wait until I've seen it. If they're talking about a movie that I'm only mildly curious about, then I can hear how it ends and save myself 15 bucks. Um, mm. But it's a great podcast. I highly recommend it. Very funny. Very informative. Um, but one of the points they made, um, and Red Letter Media made the same point, is that mm. we're getting to a point with the Marvel Cinematic Universe where we're getting what's kind of thought of as manufactured fun. Mm. That is just this very formulaic shooting style, sense of humor, tonal similarity. I'm totally in agreement with you that all of those things we need to watch out for. You're asking me what my opinion was of your Bizzlecast about the reshoots, and I, it, I, my opinion is it was a hot take based on insufficient inf- information. Oh, I, I hope that is the case. <laughs> but, but you know, this is coming from someone who has been podcasting about mostly Disney properties for the last 16 months. That's and true. Who has been watching Disney movies since before I can even remember. Also true. Um, and so but usually I, 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 it feels like you go into these with more concrete information behind it, uh, than, than this in particular instance. I think you jumped the gun on this one. I could be totally proven wrong. Okay. Doesn't mean I think you made a mistake in making it or anything like that. I, I, but I think your conclusions are kind of, uh, for on this particular s- issue, maybe not, Maybe there isn't enough evidence to really bore it out yet. Now, if we yeah, get... And, and, oh, hold on, hold on. I want to back you up, though, there, against myself, which is... I read an article today, an interview of Taika Waititi, who's directing mm-hmm. the new Thor movie. Right. He's an award-winning New Zealander director. In fact, yep. I've seen uh, the preview for his next movie coming out, which is huge Oscar bait. It looks so funny. Um, it looks almost like a, a New Zealand-style Wes Anderson movie okay. with a chubby New Zealander kid and some old guy who he befriends, and they're on the run because they've been accused of something that they didn't do, but it's sort of like a comedy, um, and uh, it looks quite excellent. And he says, he says Marvel, he, to his experience, Marvel has felt more like an indie studio than a big-budget studio. Right. And he's been, he actually didn't want to do it. I think they had Ruffalo. Him and Ruffalo knew each other through something. Ruffalo is just a fan, and it, some. I I don't know what how what exactly went down, but they didn't have to beg him. They are Marvel. They can get whoever they want, but they really wanted him. And once he got a look at it, so yeah, I, I, I don't think that you know they're really like clamping down big time on creativity. But I, I think one of the bigger points I wanted to make th- that I'm always hinting and never actually talk about is this PG-13 thing, which I'm sick of. Sure. I'm absolutely sick of it. I'm sick of it. I saw with my dad. Met you know five dollar movie just because we were bored. We we're like let's go see a comedy. We'll go see the new Rock, um, Kevin Hart movie. Right. Just fuck it. It was funny, but you know what? If it had been rated R, 
and written a little bit better, it would have been really hilarious. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the fact that they couldn't use language, I mean, it's not that you need to do it, but the highest grossing comedies of the last 15 years are all of the Judd Apatow, Paul Rudd, Seth Rogen, Elizabeth Banks, that whole scene. They're all rated R, they're all low budget, and they make a shit ton of money, Wedding Crashers, because they're funny as hell. And I'm just sick of it. Or you Deadpool. Know? And, and, I mean, right, Deadpool exactly. outgrossed many, many, many other superhero movies in its genre, uh, you know, in the same genre. You know, I think it outgrossed all of many of the X movies. It, it outgrossed many of the Spider-Mans. All and the these- number one, the number one grossing rated R movie before Deadpool was Matrix Reloaded. Oh, Matrix Reloaded. And... If you look at Matrix Reloaded, it fits completely now the in 2016 the PG-13 rating situation. Yeah. So that's not even really a true rated R movie because there's not a lot of blood. It, there's no F words. There's a couple of S words. You can get away with a fuck and some shits and, and yeah. you can be PG-13. So uh, that was really just a larger critique of, uh, of the film industry. Yes, it was a hot take, but it was a hot take because this was like finally Disney, I thought maybe had some balls to go a little darker. No, I don't think that's the case could be wrong i hope you're right i hope i'm wrong i'm never one who is who is sad to be wrong Uh, you know i I care more (laughs) about good movies than being right you know i'm not that guy i I don't care if my predictions are right you know um but uh you know i i i I want the movie to be good so we'll see what happens with that we'll follow up on it um all right so really quickly man then we'll sign off here we won't talk about the new star trek movie star trek beyond i think you and i are equally skeptical uh, about it i mean you're you're more skeptical than me just because you are a more skeptical person than me but i think (laughs) in terms of our personalities we are equally skeptical about it so that's fine i love zoe saldana and chris pine uh, and zachary quinto and and carl urban and so forth i'm hoping the cast can carry it to at least be fun and entertaining i think if nothing else it's not even trying to attain the fake depth of into darkness and so if nothing else it'll be more honest right i mean even if it's shallow i don't know if that's like a big compliment or whatever um who knows yeah yeah i I know you don't want to talk about that so just really quickly to close there is a new star trek series it's going to be like online only you're gonna have to pay for it i have no idea what the budget is they're not releasing any numbers any names i do know that people who were involved in the series in the 90s are again involved with this i can't see this working out i think it's going to be terrible or just no one will see it thoughts on the new series i think the latter is more likely to happen i i it it totally could suck. Um, but I think what's more likely going to happen is it's going to be decent. I'm not saying it's the next next gen or DS nine. I would, I want to rem- hold out hope that it is at least better than enterprise or Voyager. So I think it's going to go down as the fourth best, uh, star Trek show to date. I hope everybody watches it. Not cause I think it's going to be worth that, but this is obviously to me, a test case to see if Star Trek can work on TV again. If this does well, the next step will be creating a Star Trek show with a better budget that goes on network TV. I'm positive CBS would make that call if the ratings bear prove that it could work. But if nobody watches this thing, then they can write it off and say, oh, well, we put it on this little side thing anyway. We never thought it was going to do well. But then we probably will never get a Star Trek TV show again. And I still think Star Trek has always been its best form when it's on TV. Okay. Because it lends itself 
to long form storytelling and deeper exploration yes. than you can do in two and a half, you know, two hours. Um, so I hope okay. everybody watches this show just so that we then get a network Star Trek show um, that has more money and be- better writers and sh- whatever behind it. Okay. I knew you were going to say that, and I agree with you. Uh, we've talked about how Star Wars, uh, part of the reason it's so famous and popular and well-known is because it's movies, and you can watch them pretty easily. Uh, Star Trek, you have to watch seasons and seasons and seasons. I think there's like 560 episodes of Star Trek-related episodes ever. Something like that. But consider this. Okay. In 2002, I know you hate the numbers, so I saved it for last. In 2002, Star Trek Nemesis, which was terrible, let's be clear. Star Trek and Demesis grossed $67 million worldwide, basically lost money, okay? Seven years later, in 2009, the Star Trek reboot made almost $400 million worldwide, and Into Darkness, in 2013, made almost $500 million worldwide. So, I'm not sure... Well, let me put it this way. I'm sure that there is an audience for this stuff, but I'm not sure that the old-school way of doing Star Trek is the way to do it. Because it appears to me that the Fast and Furious style Star Trek is more appealing to people at this point. I'm not saying it's what I want or what's going to happen, but I'm not sure an old school plotting, slow moving, techno babble type show is going to work. Now, to be fair, one of the executive producers um, or writers, I'm sorry, Alex Kurtzman, Mm -hmm. um, who was involved in writing both of the Star Trek reboot movies, uh, Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness is heavily involved in this. Okay? Right. They also have Brian Fuller involved in this. And Brian Fuller, in addition to writing a bunch of Voyager episodes, was involved with Pushing Daisies and Hannibal, which are two series that are pretty acclaimed. Um, and he's still writing acclaimed TV. So, you know, they have a decent team here. I think they can do it. I just think without a budget and a real format. Like, why don't they just put this on YouTube or Netflix? I, I cannot understand it. Do you have any thoughts about this? Well, if you put it on YouTube, it's hard to make much money off of it. I mean, they're going to no, no, invest... YouTube's doing original series now, like Amazon and yeah, Netflix. Yeah, I think they, w- they want to keep this within uh, the CBS... Uh, I don't know what to call it. The network. But not the network, but like they want to keep ownership of it. Because why? on the off chance that it goes that it does really well, they don't want to have any issues holding them up from making a bigger show for net prime time. You know, it's the reason you ever wondered why Fox has never released the rights controls to Firefly, even though every, you know, there's no reason why they still have it, except that they think somewhere in the back of their mind, there's still an off chance. There's a way to make more money off of this property. No, because no, it's because they continue to make money off Blu-rays, of both the series and the movie. Okay. But it's, 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 it's an actual, you know, current income situation as opposed to a future income situation. Okay. I think. I, I could be wrong. It, it might be some of that, but I think it is also the, the potential that if somehow somebody came up with a good idea for something to do with that property, they would still have the rights to it. You know, if they okay. sold it back to Whedon, he'd be the only one who could make more Firefly. Okay. All uh, right. So okay, I'm gonna throw out just for the Bizzlecast fans a few talking, a few not talking points, a few quick facts about the new show, and then we'll do final thoughts. Sound okay? All right, all right. So it can't air until at least 2017. 
because there's a split there was a split between Viacom and CBS and so Viacom owns the movies with Paramount and CBS owns the television shows and so there's a sort of um what do they call that in business like if you leave a firm you can't sign with a comp- competing firm um uh you Not know what I'm saying clause. There you go. So there has to be at least six months between the Star Trek Beyond movie and this thing airing. So right. they're probably going to aim for early 2017. Mm-hmm. And it's a new platform. It's a video-on-demand video on service. They want to charge five ninety nine a month, CBS Hall Access. I don't see people paying that when you can pay nine ninety nine a month for Netflix. It makes zero sense. Whatever. Alex Kurtzman and Brian Fuller, who I talked about, are heading it. That's great. They're introducing brand new characters. Now, apparently, it's going to be set after the events of Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, but before Next Generation. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting period if you're a Star Trek nerd. And um, it means it sort of is taking place in the old continuity. Because old continuity. You think there's still going to be tensions, I think, with the Klingons, you know, will be a part of it. Right. Well, what I'm saying is, I, I mean, the J.J. The Abrams Star Trek movies basically wipe out everything that happens. Yes, this is an alternate universe. I yeah, believe. this is the original continuity, if you want to call it. I mean, it doesn't matter, but it does yeah. seem like it's sort of... It's More like days of future past. Yeah. yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So people are very happy about Fuller writing for it. Um, but they also have Nicholas Meyer, who directed both Wrath of Khan and The Undiscovered Country, who, right. for my money, are the two best of the original six movies, personally. Um, and uh, he also wrote the, the, the fourth one, where they go back to the present, The Voyage Home, which is a really campy, cheesy movie, but actually kind of endearing and just well done, even though it's yeah. cheesy. Um, you know, they talk about how the, the even numbers are the good ones and the odd numbers are the bad ones. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that's fine. Now, apparently, they've found a whole bunch of new data on floppy disks from Gene Roddenberry. So they claim <laughs> they're going to be working in some, you know, like... Uh, you know, bizarre, unknown stuff that we didn't know about Star Trek, you know, going forward. So that's fine. Um, and, you know, that's all we got. I mean, they have a trailer where there's no actual footage. We don't have a date. We don't have a cast. Um, I don't know. You seem more optimistic about this than I thought. I thought you were going to just say this is going to be trash and get, not give it a chance. I don't know that I'm going to pay for it. but Right, I, exactly. No, exactly. Uh, but... If I think of it as a test case for whether or not a Star Trek that is a lot closer to the Star Trek that I grew up with comes mm-hmm. back into the air mm-hmm. and maybe gets us away from what the Abrams, Justin Lin, I think his name is, yep. approach, you know, the Fast and the... I called this movie Star Fast Trek Furious. And God bless you for it. I use that all the time. Thank you, sir. I'm, I'm, I was pretty proud of myself when I came up with it. I thought it's one of my funnier jokes. But, um, you know, even if the first, the 09 Star Trek movie was good, these movies are becoming increasingly less Star Trek-y and just kind of becoming generic space opera action movies. Yes. Which is okay, but I think long term, even thinking of it simply in terms of what makes money or not, I think if Star Trek becomes indistinguishable from other sci-fi properties that are going to be around it, then people are going to watch it less. And that ultimately, going back to the core source concepts that really work, uh, is what will sustain it. In the same way that I think what Marvel does well is it gets its characters right. Um, even if it's got all kinds of other problems in the MCU, these feel like pretty honest representations of 
Iron Man, of Captain America, of Thor, of Deadpool mm-hmm. to go over to Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much with the X Men, I, but fine, you know. But they got Spider Man right, and mm-hmm. where DC and Warner Brothers fails is they get uh, bat. They got Batman and Superman, Superman especially, very very wrong. Star Trek, if they go back to what made the Star Trek show so appealing, high concepts questions about technology and what you know and if these tech existed what would the then moral question that naturally arises be and how do you deal with that less of a reliance on action and shooting and combat and more on diplomacy and conversation and debate as boring as that might sound hearing me say it through a podcast if the show did it well i think it would draw back in all of the people who love Star Trek, and I think there's still a lot of us that have maybe drifted a little bit away from this franchise because of what's come of it over the last six years. That's a great thought to end on. I just want to add uh, your mention of character. I mean, what was great about the Star Trek reboot in 09 was that they nailed the characters. It wasn't that it, I mean, it wasn't just that it was a, you know, high flying, super fast sci fi movie. It was that if you knew the original characters, they were great interpretations of younger versions of them in an alternate universe, I thought. They were, um, but they were all kind of supercharged versions of themselves um, in a way that it's like every one of them is doing. It's well, to like be fair, the, in the Spock new universe. On meth the, and Uhura on meth, kind of. Yeah, but know? that's because, well, that, that was Coke. the whole point. Right, and I get that. It was was in the new universe, they were facing a a universe-ending situation much earlier than in the original universe. That was the whole point, was that they they hadn't even graduated the academy yet. You know, they were just kids, you know. uh, So that worked for me. Second one, obviously not so much. Um, I will say, though, man, my buddy Aaron Slavutin, who I've done some audio commentaries with, he's not a Star Trek guy at all. He loves the Star Trek reboot movies, including Into Darkness, but especially yeah. the original. And, and uh, that really, you know, the fact that they, you know, multiplied their money times like eight or ten on that movie from the Star Trek movie before that, there's right. something that appeals to people there. But yeah, the question is, right, when does this just become a name? When does it just become a name and not really have anything to do with the things we loved about it growing up, which is the slow-moving stuff, which is the dialogue, which is the diplomacy, which is the the scientific talk. I agree with you, man. I want it. But they're saying it's right now they're planning on one season with 13 episodes that are totally serialized. I'm not sure we're going to get anything slow-moving in that situation. I think that's what Battlestar did brilliantly, and I'll just end on this, which Battlestar has taken over for me by far from Star Trek in my own just personal mind that you you were able to have tons of, of slower moving episodes where it was just like a military drama you know you, there wasn't fighting every single episode the Rexy wasn't fighting even a majority of the episodes mm-hmm. um, and, and that they were able to, to, to strike that balance and that they had people from the Star Trek team on there and taking the lessons of what worked and what didn't work I want to see new properties like Battlestar um, th- that do take from Star Trek but um, but you know, but 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 do it in a different way. Um, so uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, a- any any final thoughts about like? Um, do you just uh, real quick? Do you, do you rewatch any of the episodes ever, or just sort of in in, in your brain at this point? I don't own Netflix, so no. Um, oh. I, I don't have. I I turned on my Netflix account just long Amazon enough Prime? to. No, I don't okay. pay. I don't have any of those extra services. I have a cable. Ch- uh, package that costs no. plenty, and I don't need to be spending any extra money. You know, even if it's five or six or eight bucks a month, I honestly don't think I would get 
use out of it. Like mm. I turned back on Netflix so I could watch Daredevil season two. I watched Daredevil season two in about three days, and then I, I maybe watched Jones. two episodes of Family Guy and a half an hour show called Kung Fury, which was pretty cool. Uh, and that was it. That was all the use I got out of Netflix in a month of having it. Um, so you, so you, got, you got your DVR working overtime. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, by the way, almost done Flash Season 2. I'll eventually get there. <laughs> um, I did finish watching S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, I don't know what to say about that show. It's bad. Uh, it's just, but I love the cast. Is the thing. I, I, I don't I think, even love the cast. Yeah, I, I, love, I do love the cast. I, I'm having trouble with Flash and Arrow. It's just the the. It's just even more than Shield. It's just getting formulaic for me. Anyways, we could talk about this another time. Um, yeah, hard to know where all this is going. You know, I mean, our optimism level is constantly going up and down about these properties. Uh, I guess that's just the life of a nerd. <laughs> so well, thank you for being on. Um, any uh, anything else you want to say to the Bizzlecast listeners? Uh, no, I mean, I don't want to talk about this right now. But at some point, I would love to hear your thoughts about the reboot Battlestar film that is being talked about. Don't even get me started. I'm so mad. I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm just pretending it's not happening. I want nothing to do with it. If Katie Sackhoff, Eddie Almost, and company are not in that movie, I want nothing to do with it. Nothing. <laughs> It's going to be a disaster. It's going to be terrible. And I, I just hope that everyone involved in the series protests and uh, causes all sorts of problems for them. I certainly will. <laughs> all right, people. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, for uh, Maddie G, a.k.a. Goose, and the Bizzle, we are out. All right, buddy. Thanks. Yep. And it's late. I guess we should get some sleep. Yeah, I'm pretty tired. I'm going to call it. All right, brother. I'll be in touch. All right. Bye. All right. Peace, brother.